Good morning. Great to see you. Welcome to Awakening. Uh, if you're new, my name's Ryan. We're thrilled to have you and wanted to give a special welcome. Don't do this often enough, but for those who are joining us online, I know it's ski week for some families. We've got a lot of people traveling and a lot of people sick. And uh, in fact, my wife is uh, watching us right now online. So, hey, there you go. Um, Man, great to be with you. We're in a series called Marriaging, and so if you are a millennial, you immediately know what we mean, and if you are not, you're like, wait a second, you made up a word. Okay, what, what is that? And so there is this word called adulting that has been coined by the millennial generation. It is the process by which you are learning how to become an adult. And so um, when it comes to marriage, we decided to call this series Marriaging because so often we talk about getting married and focus all our energy and effort on becoming married, but we don't actually spend the time on learning how to be married. And many times relationships, and I see this over and over again, get married, spend lots of money on the wedding, lots of energy on the wedding, lots of time on the wedding, and then go into autopilot for a long season, and then run into roadblocks and all sorts of things and wonder what happened. And well, hey, we're going to talk about how to be married. By way of review, uh, we started out this way saying there's a myth about marriage. There's a marriage myth that we tend to buy into. Uh, And here it is. This is insidious in our culture or pervasive in our culture is that when I find the right person, everything will work out right. That when I, find, when I find the right person, then everything's going to work out right. We won't have any problems. It will all be fantastic. And underneath that, there's a few things that uh, play out in our, in our life. Um, one is for singles, is, is that um, this whole right person myth makes you feel like you're incomplete or less than if you are not married or have someone in your life. And one of the great news about one we were just singing about your identity, your identity in Christ, is that um, no person will ever complete you. The only person who can ever complete you is Jesus, and you are more than enough in him. And Christianity, by the way, was the very first Ever to elevate singleness. Jesus was single and not incomplete in any way and fully. Um, someone, oh, I thought it was someone rooting for that. Um, <laughs> all right. The other thing under when I find the right person that is, um, that is problematic is when things don't go right, we begin to believe this. Maybe I didn't marry the right person. And we begin to buy into this when things don't go right. Maybe I didn't marry the right person. Maybe I married the wrong person because it's just not working out. But the truth is, 
there are predictable stages in every single relationship. We talked about this, and so the foundation of this series is Ephesians 5, um, verse 21, and we talked about the stages of relationship in our week one, which was three weeks ago. You can go back and listen to it, but by way of review, here's the stages. The first stage is the honeymoon stage. Many of you have experienced this before, that uh, you experience this euphoric delight Everything's absolutely perfect in the honeymoon stages. Isn't it funny? The differences delight you. The differences. Oh, man. He is so spontaneous. Oh, she is so organized. Isn't that great? And then you move from there anywhere from six months to two years to the disillusionment stage. And you begin to ask this question or say this. If only they would change blank. If only he wouldn't be so spontaneous. If only she wouldn't be so anal. It moved from organized to anal. That's what changes in that process. And what used to delight now divides you. Where in the disillusionment stage, you begin to focus on fixing the other person. How can I fix you? How can I fix you? Because clearly, you are the problem. It couldn't be me. You are the problem. Stage three, then, is the misery stage. Welcome to marriage. You realize you cannot change them. Because you've been trying and trying, and what can I do to change them? You try every which way, and you realize I cannot change them. And oftentimes, there's one of two responses. Uh, There's a third response we'll cover in just a second. But one of two responses is either under the marriage myth, you say, I married the wrong person. And so you get a divorce. Did you know the average marriage in America lasts eight years? That's it. So I wonder where the misery stage finds its end. I'm thinking about eight years. You get a divorce and you repeat. Honeymoon stage, disillusionment stage, misery stage, repeat. Another option then is that you just simply get distracted. You just get distracted with life. Get distracted with kids. Get distracted with your job. Get distracted with hobbies, with whatever it else uh, you have. And you focus on those sort of things because you realize you can't change them and you grit uh, through it and you're just miserable. However, there is a fourth stage if you, and it's called the awakening stage, and it's the shift from moving from if only they would change, realizing you can't change them. The awakening stage says this, what can I do to change? What can I do to change? Because you realize the only person that you can change or you have control over is who? Yourself. You can't change them, but you can make the choices and begin to embrace, hey, guess what? They may not be the whole problem. You still may think they're a big part of the problem, but you're bringing something to this. And you begin to ask, and this is such a powerful question. This is transformative for relationships. When you stop trying to fix the other person and you say, what can I do to change? What can I do to change? How can I love them? And out of that comes what's known as the intimacy stage, where you become a team, where the differences no longer divide you, but they actually become something that you, yeah, sometimes there's still friction, absolutely, but you realize you can leverage them and you work together and realize that you're better together than you ever could be apart. 
Now, the reason for the review is to get that fresh in our mind because this morning we're going to be talking about this idea of being in pursuit of intimacy. In pursuit of intimacy. See, the deep longing of your soul, the deep longing of my soul, is actually this intimate connection with another human being. In fact, intimacy is the deep, authentic, vulnerable sharing between two souls. It's deep. It's authentic. That means it's genuine. It's real. It's the real you showing up. It's crack your chest open and let people see or let her or let him see inside. Between two souls of knowing and being known. At the core The deep longing that you desire, that I desire, is for intimacy. We were created this way. We were created for intimacy. Unfortunately, we often settle for pseudo-intimacy. Pseudo-intimacy is a way to somehow scratch the itch of being known without truly being known. Of knowing someone else without really having to get to know them. For some, pseudo-intimacy comes in the way of pleasure and sexual pursuits. For some, pseudo-intimacy comes in the way of of emotional just attachment. And and oftentimes what happens, I see this, actually we're creating a pseudo-intimate society online now. Where where it is a one-way street, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how people emote online and act as if that is their community? What's incredible about it is um, you don't have to deal with anyone. See, the difference, intimacy is knowing and what? Being known. It's a two-way street. And the reason we don't like to do this is because, remember, it's a deep, authentic, vulnerable. It's vulnerable. It's scary. See, a way to think about intimacy, and I've said this before in the past, and here's a little kitschy way, is in, help me out here, next one, thank you, in to me see. That's intimacy. Instead of letting people or someone in your life see parts of you, the ones that you want to see, the projections that you put out, For everyone else to see? You say, no, you get to see me, and into you I see. This is where we are um, created to be as a people, is to have this intimate, deep sharing. Now, when we think about intimacy, especially culturally, we think about it, or at least maybe as a guy, let's talk about guys. Um, guys, we think about intimacy physically, right? That, okay, I think about intimacy physically. Some of you are like, I ain't, I'm not going there with you. Okay, I'll go there, and you can all lie and not be honest with me. But intimacy is really threefold. Now, you can have incredible, deep intimacy and never be married. Deep, vulnerable, authentic, and not be lacking. 
But there is this part of intimacy where it is physical, significant touch, meaningful touch, touch that actually matters, that not a lustful touch, not a touch for your own self uh, desire, but a touch that is for the other's good to express your deep, loving relationship. In intimacy emotionally, where you're vulnerable with the things in your life that are, are, are most dear to you, where you share your fears and your hopes and dreams. I think those two areas are the areas that we tend to withhold, is the things that we're most afraid of. And sometimes it's easier to share the things we're most afraid of than the things we're, we're, we're hoping and dreaming. And then the area spiritually. Because, by the way, you are a spiritual being. And this is the category we, when we're talking about intimacy and we're talking about relationship, we, we tend to drop off the map. But you are an eternal soul created in God's image. Eternal, meaning you're going on forever created by God, and the person next to you is this internal being created by God, this soul. You are fundamentally a spiritual being with a human body. And so when we're talking about intimacy, the first direction and the reason this is the hunger, the reason this is the craving, the reason at the core of it, for you and for me, this is how we're designed, is because we're fundamentally hardwired for intimacy with God. And until we get that part right, we'll never experience the intimacy with others that we long to have. And so this morning, in pursuit of intimacy, I want to talk about the promise or process of intimacy and then the practice of intimacy. The process, how do we begin to step in and experience, and then the practice, whether you're single or dating, engaged or married, what, is some, what are some specific steps we can take? And if you've been traveling with us or journeying with us in this series, you'll know we're teaching through Ephesians 5, uh, verse 21, um, and actually into chapter 6 next week or in the week following, but but if, if you were here last week, you will notice that the Apostle Paul quoted uh, one of the ancient writings on marriage uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis. He quoted uh, Genesis. This is the foundational uh, passage for marriage. So the Apostle Paul quotes it. Jesus quotes it. And in it, we discover the process for how to experience Intimacy, And so I'm going to go all the way back um, to Genesis to read and discover, okay, how do we experience true intimacy? And so the author of Genesis starts off this way. Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave, circle that word leave, his father and mother and be united, circle the word be united, to his wife and they will become one flesh. Give me a little squiggly mark under one flesh, become one flesh. And this is just a little side note because if I, if I forget it, I don't want to miss it. So under become one flesh, become, and remember what I said, the process of intimacy. Intimacy is a process it takes time. It is a process that, by which you discover more deeply another. 
So oftentimes, we th- so often we think it's just going to be this light bulb. Boom, you have it. Think about this too. This is true in your relationship with God. It's a process. Intimacy also is dynamic. It isn't static. You don't arrive and you just go, hey, I'm here. It's this process of becoming one flesh. This is the goal of marriage, by the way. The goal of marriage isn't to make you happy, even though it is for your well-being. The goal of marriage is this incredible picture of oneness, so much so that it is a picture or example of Christ and the church. That's what the Apostle Paul would say in our text, that he, he takes this season of just getting blown away by the picture, because in the beginning, Genesis, here, here it is, here's the picture. In the beginning, Genesis starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve. And this is the the dialogue from that. At the end, Revelation, the Bible ends with a wedding, and it's Christ and the church. And this picture of oneness or one flesh, the marriage relationship, is actually a picture of God's relationship with us. So that when marriage is working right, it shows the intimacy and relationship and connection that God has created for us with him and that he is actually doing with us in Christ Jesus. And so this whole idea of becoming one flesh is powerful. It's the goal. One flesh, oneness, not sameness. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay. So how do we experience intimacy? Let me get, give you just three, three things, observations from the text. Uh, the first step to experiencing intimacy is you got to leave. You got to leave. The key word here is maturity. Remember, leave his, leave his father and mother. I, I put under there the idea is stability versus instability. You know, uh, in 1960, the average age for getting married for a woman was 20 years old. The average age for a man was 22. In 1990, the average age for a woman was 25. The average age for a man was 26. Today, the average age for a woman is 27 in getting married. The average age for a man is 29. And by the way, the average age for divorce is 30 years of age. What's fascinating, what I find fascinating is there's a lot of research is as we have delayed this marriage and getting married, we've also have something known as delayed adolescence. What's happening isn't that we're taking that season of, of not being married to mature, to develop, to, to grow in stability, taking that season to delay and act as an adolescent. Psychologists call it delayed adolescence. And so what was once true of an 18-year-old is now true of a 28-year-old many times. And this is the idea for us. If you want to experience intimacy, the beginning part is a leaving, a maturity. Leave your childish ways behind you. That, that you would begin to move forward in life. That, that you would leave some bad habits. This is finding stability in life emotionally. So that you're not on this roller coaster doing the hard work of going, okay, what we're just singing about, getting your identity secure in Christ so that you're not looking to someone to base your identity on. Finding stability financially. 
So many marriages and relationships start off in debt and incredible pressure. Finding your stability and becoming stable vocationally and spiritually. Now, Les and Leslie Parrott write this. They write a lot on marriage and psychologists. He says this, if you attempt to build intimacy with another person before you have done the hard work of becoming a whole and healthy person, every relationship will be an attempt to complete the whole in your heart and the lack of what you do not have, and it will end in disaster. Now, for some, you've been married for a while, and there's still some leaving that needs to happen. There, there, there is. There's the leaving of childish ways. There's a leaving of always going to your mom when things get hard or always going to your dad when get, things get hard. For some, you're, you're not married, and this isn't a great place for you where you realize this is a process and a stage in life where I along and gather around great friends in your life and go, how can I become more and more like Jesus? And as you do that and you look around you and you find other people who are pursuing, you're going to find someone that you go, wow, you're amazing. And you'll find your spouse that way. Also in leaving, let me just give you permission. Because it's leaving old ways behind. And sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to grieve. Every transition, even into new and good things, means that you're leaving something behind. Transition from being single to then being married. That's a massive transition. There's some things you have to leave. You have to leave the bachelor life behind. You have to change the way you interact with uh, uh, people of the opposite sex. The way you hang out and the way you allocate time. You have to change it because you're now married. And there's, it's okay to grieve it for a season, but celebrate what's ahead. The same is true when you have kids. You're entering a new season. And you're going to grieve some of the times that you had that were just, you could go out on a date anytime you wanted. Wasn't that amazing? Right? Your house was quiet. Remember that? Yeah. And, and, and give appropriate time to grieve. Maybe your kids are out of the house now. And you grieve the moments when the, when the house was loud. When it was full. And you're entering in a new season. So... First state, step to experiencing intimacy is this process of, is leaving, of maturity, stability versus instability. And for you, maybe you need to identify, okay, what is it, an area of stability that I need to step in? Is there something I need to leave? The second is we circle the word be united. I like the old King James version just because it's more fun to say, is leave and then cleave. And this word is an incredible word. It is this idea of being united in such a way that, that you cannot tear it apart, that, that it is inseparable. Now, this is a very different way for us to think about relationships today. The key word here under cleave is committed or commitment. The way we think about relationships today is so often contractual. It's how we do relationships. The way the Bible talks about a marriage relationship is covenantal. 
It's covenant versus contract. The way we treat many of the relationships today is the way, same way we treat our cell phone, like contract. We get into it because they promised all these great benefits. And then there's the downside and all these secret, you know, little add-ons and all this, and, but we're stuck. Like, oh! See, with a contract, you'll stay in it as long as it's good for you. With a contract, um, it's one of these things, this is good for now. This is just kind of the way, if this is good for now, as long as you're doing what I need you to do, and it's always conditional, isn't it? I give you blank with the phone. I give them way too much money every month so that you give me blank. Contractual relationships. It's the way we do it, and it kills, kills, kills intimacy. And we have a society that's really struggling. I don't want to say can't, because you can, but it is struggling to make a commitment. A covenant commitment is, is what I read with, with a couple in front and getting married. Do you take this man? Do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded husband or wife? To honor and cherish in sickness and in health, in prosperity and adversity. And leaving all others till death do us part. See, a covenant is a promise or a pledge to another person that is irrevocable. It says, I do with you forever. And so, by the way, for those who are married, the D word should never come up. Just strike it. D word for those of you going like, damn, no, divorce, <laughs> divorce, right? So you just, I, I don't mean, I'm not bragging here. I'm just telling you, we made this commitment. We have never said or joked about the word divorce in our marriage. I don't know if we've thought about it or not, but we have never said or, joke, or joked about it. Not even letting it come into the conversation. Why? Because 14 years ago, I got up front. Actually, my dad's here. He was standing here. He performed it. Not here, literally. (laughs) And we made a covenant commitment that, by the way, 14 years ago, we didn't know how to keep. And it's been a process of intimacy, of learning how to keep that. And as the process, the stages of the relationship, of going through the disillusionment, going through the misery, of learning and beginning to ask, what can I do to change? That has been the environment that fosters intimacy. See, true intimacy, vulnerability, re- requires a covenant commitment. It does. As long as you can get out, I I don't want to show you me. As long as I'm trying to somehow earn from you, I'm going to present a better picture of me. 
See, intimacy, when you crack open your chest, is incredible because here's what you're saying. I'm going to show you me, the good and the parts that I don't really like, and I'm trusting that you're not going to run away. I'm trusting that you're going to be with me through it all, that you're going to love me, and that together we're going to grow closer to Jesus. So leave maturity, cleave commitment, and then finally, nakedness. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this is nakedness. This is like you. This is not just like physically naked. Yes, this is naked emotionally. This is naked spiritually. This is just you without any pretense, without all the external strappings, without all the things and that you're trying to prove to others. It's the idea between safe versus shame. Safe. Uh, years ago, I remember rewriting 1 Corinthians 13 to personalize. Uh, that's the famous love passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. That passage. And I give every couple this homework assignment to do what I did years ago is to rewrite it and personalize it towards your spouse. Uh, Part of my rewriting in it, uh, I wrote this. I want you to know that you're always safe with me. I want you to know that you're always safe with me. Like, like what you share. And, and I wish I could say that I've always created an environment where my wife felt always safe with me. There's been moments and seasons in our marriage where my, I call it intensity. She would call it anger. <laughs> Create an environment where then walls were put up. Why? Because in that moment, in those moments, she didn't feel safe with me. See, this idea of nakedness is where you create for the other. Remember, that's where we're getting is, is okay, based on your personality, on your heart and tendency and what you need, how can I create a safe environment? And I'm not going to shame you about it. Why do you feel that way? <laughs> that's so stupid. Come on, get over it. Oh, wish you weren't lazy. If you would just get your act together and go out there and just... Isn't it amazing how those words come out of our mouth? Almost as easy as breathing. And see, nakedness, this idea of intimacy is where you begin to ask, what can I do to change? What can I do to change? How can I create an environment where you're safe with me? What words and ways that I'm communicating are actually shaming? 
See, when we feel shame, we cover up. Adam and Eve did it. The minute they felt shame, the minute they were in the garden and they blew it, they grabbed some fig leaves, they went into hiding, and they covered up what was most vulnerable to them. When you feel safe, you open up. I think that's why God came so tenderly in the garden, by the way. Adam and Eve's first rebellion against God, and he didn't come saying, what the heck are you doing? You know what he did? He came walking as he always did in the garden, as if nothing had changed. Adam, Eve, his question, where are you? You're hiding. You're covering up. Where are you? What a great question instead of what have you done? I can't believe. For some, you have a God that you need to hear this this morning. Who isn't holding things over your head and you've been hiding in shame from him, but a God who's going, where are you? A God who isn't waiting for you to come out of hiding and come to him, but a God who actually stepped into time, space, and history to find you right where you're at so that you could come out of hiding and shame. And where we would, in our marriage, create a safe place for intimacy. Say, where are you? This is why this picture, I think, is really important if you go to the next one. For in the process of intimacy. Oh, no. It's, huh. I did not look at that on the PowerPoint earlier. We'll fix it later. Please, under the bottom, that emotional is supposed to be spiritual. You can put the physical over there, and then you can put the emotional on the side. So on the bottom, the base of the triangle, (laughs) I looked over this last night, and I didn't even notice. Uh, Oh, good. It's right in the notes. It's written in perfect. Okay, you got it. That's good to know. We'll fix it for next service. (laughs) But if you want to experience intimacy, make foundation the foundational part of your relationship, your spirituality. Because the closer you grow to God, the closer you'll grow to your mate. Now, one of the big tensions in our marriage is as a guy, and I don't know, I don't know if this is general, so I'm just going to say me. Um, one of the ways that I feel most connected to my wife is physically, sexually, that that paves the way for me to be emotionally responsive. However, for my wife, it's emotional. That this tenderness, this kindness, this gentleness, this emotional connection paves the way for her to be physically intimate. And for a long time, what we had was a war. I need this so that I can be this for you. I need this 
They said, I can give this for you. And for some, when we're talking about intimacy, you're at a stalemate in your relationship, in your marriage, and it's two sides warring and holding out until the other gives. This is why the spiritual foundation is so powerful. When you begin to go, okay, I'm going to prioritize and pursue the heart of God, experience his love for me, then I'm going to love you in a way that makes sense to you. You have a God who loved you in a way that made sense to you. And when you make that the foundation of your marriage, the foundation of your relationship, inevitably what will happen is you will grow closer together spiritually and emotionally. Now, think about this. And this is especially true for those who are single, dating, engaged. This whole process, leave, cleave, nakedness. I I just make one observation before we move on, and i got to move on. We flip it up in our culture. Flip it upside down in our culture. Okay? We flip this upside down. We start with naked, and then we cleave, commitment, and then we leave. That's how we do it. And I mean, honestly, so if you're single here, this is the process where we see hook up and then shack up and then break up. That's it. And we wonder why we have an intimacy crisis and the deep longing of our soul isn't being met. Would you flip it right side up, leave, cleave, nakedness. Backside of your notes, I went too long on the front. We're going to just go through this quickly. The practice of intimacy for those single dating, commitment's low. Therefore, intimacy emotionally, physically, spiritually with another person should be low as well. The problem is we jumpstart the physical emotional side and as a result stay in a relationship we shouldn't stay in far past its expiration date. The perspective is it that of a brother or sister? The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, said, Do not rebu- rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as your brother, older women, women as your mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So he asked this question. And these, I think, we continue to ask. What's the highest and best for the other person? What's the highest and best for the other person? How can I push you towards Jesus? Whether this relationship works or not, at the end of it, I want to make sure that you love Jesus more. For those who are engaged, as the commitment grows, intimacy grows. Perspective is that of a son or daughter of God. I mean, what would change in our dating, engaged relationships, or even in your marriage, if you began to think about your spouse, you think about the person that you're interested in, think about the person you're dating or engaged to as the daughter of the King Most High, as the son of the King of Kings. Like, you ever been afraid of someone else's parent, like what they're going to do to you if you mess up with them? And then you think about the other person, and every single person is the daughter of the king. Hello. All right. Um, It's cool. You say, I have a daughter, right? She's 12. She isn't dating yet. Praise God. (laughs) 
But I'll tell you what, I have a gun collection off start. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right? But you begin to view the other as daughter, son. Paul says this, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. The question we tackled this last week that you need to be asking as an engaged is how can we be better together than we ever could apart? How can we be better together? Your language needs to shift from me, I-centered language, to we-centered language. And marriage, commitment secure, intimacy can be full. Remember, it's a process. It's not a guarantee. And that you realize you can uh, step into fullness of intimacy. Perspective, one body. Jesus said it this way. Quoting back, haven't you read, he replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There, I can't do a relationship series without giving you the most transformative relational question, and many of you have heard this before, but this is one of the things that was causing separation in our marriage. Let no one separate, not even you. And the question is, what is the most generous explanation for their behavior? What is the most generous explanation for their behavior? What is the most generous explanation? Isn't it amazing how we can give ourselves the benefit of the doubt because we understand our motives and our intentions and our desires? And yet with those who are closest to us, we do not give them the benefit of the doubt. And often instead of what's the most generous explanation for their behavior, we give what is the worst case explanation for why they did blank. And you begin to ask, okay, what's the most generous explanation? Maybe it's not to annoy me. Maybe it's not to somehow make life miserable. I'll give this last illustration and then we'll, we'll close. Um, I, uh, my, I'm a, in my organization, I, I'm a free organizer. I freely organize my stuff around the house. I drop some of it off there, some of it off there, some of it off there. Because I know where everything's at. My wife, however, does not fully appreciate my organizational system. And she is a, a piler organizer of my stuff. And so I'll find my freely organized stuff by my bedside table piled up. Isn't it funny the things you argue about, that you get angry about? This happened for years. And we started yelling. I remember one day I was so mad. I slammed the door so hard. Piling. She's piling my stuff. She's piling my stuff. I told her I don't like piles. Oh. And you know what I began to think? She's doing this to make me mad. Because I told her I don't like piles. Don't put it in a pile. 
began to ask this question. This is so good. Maybe it's for your parents. Maybe it's for your kids. Maybe it's for the person driving in front of you on the way home from church. What's the most generous explanation for their behavior? And you go, you know what? The most generous explanation for their behavior and for my wife's there is she didn't want junk around the house when she's trying to create an incredible home for us and for others. A little bit different perspective. I still spread, she still piles. <laughs> but we don't get worked up about it anymore. I look at the pile and go, oh man, I don't want to deal with that. And then I don't for a while until she says, would you deal with it? Okay. Because <sighs> it stresses me out. But I get it. What would it look like if, when you begin to give your spouse, your mate, a generous explanation? When you think what's true of them and you don't cut them down and you don't think little, when you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Try it, even if you don't think it's true. Even if you think they're doing it to make you mad and see how it changes how you respond to the other.